Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. It's Monday, February 15th. Um, Some places, if not most, maybe have today off, if that's even a thing that still happens anymore, because it's President's Day weekend. But because we, you know, have such a large population of the country right now working from home, it's unclear anymore what a weekday is versus a weekend versus a self-care more moment versus just taking a shower versus, um, you know, if there is a federal holiday, what do you do with that time anymore? Because we can't necessarily go out and do things, you know, vacation, travel, go over to a friend's house, have a barbecue. Those kinds of things aren't necessarily advised. We actually advise against them at this moment. And so it's unclear what we do anymore on federal holidays, especially in the winter, because we currently have from East Coast to West Coast, a winter storm like no other, where there is snow all throughout Seattle, all throughout New York and DC. It's kind of bringing things to a halt. So then you really can't do much on the federal holiday. And we are talking today to Ivy in Kentucky, where there is no snow, but there is a different problem of sorts from the winter. And Ivy, can you explain to us in whatever detail you feel is necessary for someone who's never seen anything like this, what is a freezing storm, a, a, a freezing rainstorm? What is happening in Kentucky right now and how does it happen exactly? Well, it's um, maybe the worst part of winter <laughs> is that we can <laughs> we can have an ice storm that doesn't Wait, ice storm. Yes, yes, an ice storm, and it doesn't necessarily include snow. It can, but um, this one that we have had for the past week and is um, starting another one today. I'm looking at my window, watching it fall right now. Um, is just an ice storm, and it is basically um, there's something about the way the layers of the atmosphere are cooling and heating that causes the rain as it falls to freeze. And then it, it falls and it sounds like hail, like a hailstorm, um, but it's actually liquid until it hits the ground and it freezes upon hitting the ground and anything, anything else that's outside and cold enough for it to stay frozen. And so we had, we had this happen last week and it's been so cold. It's been below freezing the entire week and the ice hasn't melted. And then today <laughs> we woke up to a little tiny layer of snow. And now, as I said, it's, we have more freezing rain that's falling in addition. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so wait a minute, there's like different kinds of versions of hail. Um, there's like really big pieces. It almost looks like a chunk of ice coming out of someone's like refrigerator freezer, um, you yeah. know, frozen ice hail. And then there's tiny little like pellets, um, what what does your hail like ice storm look like as it's you know on the ground and collecting itself? It looks like ice. <laughs> it looks like <laughs> just a sheet of ice. <laughs> 
it's very, very bizarre. You know, you look outside and it's covering everything, every single blade of grass, every tree limb, anything that's outside, any buildings or cars or anything like that. It's just all covered in a layer of ice, um, I mean, like half an inch thick. <clears throat> now, right now in Texas, there is there is also a, a big winter storm that's like, you know, uh, possibly, you know, going to crack people's uh, water pipes and cause major damage to the homes. There are thousands of people without electricity. Do they have an ice storm or a snowstorm or is there a third kind of winter storm? I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a combination of the two. That's probably what they're experiencing there that is just really, really bad. Um here in Kentucky, I think it's like some, I feel like sometimes we sit on this border between being really cold in the North and being really warm in the South. And I think that's what causes this freezing rain, ice storm kind of thing, where it's just the ice, the freezing rain that's falling um, because it's not, it's not necessarily cold enough in the atmosphere for it to turn into snow. And so it stays in this liquid form. <laughs> now, when I have snow here in Northern Nevada, you know, I have to shovel it mm -hmm. and then I salt ground so that you know things aren't slippery and slick um what do you do when it's ice though you just have to wait <laughs> you have to wait they can salt the roads if they are dry but if they're wet it doesn't do any good and because that water will freeze again and so then the freezing rain falls and it just freezes on top of it um so you have to wait until it melts at least on the roads and you can scrape it everywhere else you just have to wait <laughs> so does this mean that like you knew in advance that this ice storm was coming and you went to the store like do you, is this a moment mm -hmm. where you like stock up on things and you don't worry about necessarily the power going out and you losing you know your fresh food because you could just put it outside right. and it's like a freezer <laughs> refrigerator so that's not quite the the fear but you know there is the freezing pipes situation and then if you lose electricity like how do you get heat well it depends if you have gas heat or if you have a fireplace that's how a lot of people will do it if you have electric heat you're just out of luck i remember being a kid you know back in the mountains and we would have big snowstorms we we didn't really get ice storms there because we're a little bit further south than where mm -hmm. i am now um but when we would have big ice storms we had or i'm sorry snowstorms we had electric heat and our heat would go out electricity would go out so we would have to go down to my grandparents house who had a wood stove just to stay warm because it would be so cold you know so people who have electric heat are really out of luck. People who have gas heat, you know, you can still turn on the um, gas fireplace or turn on your stove or something like that to stay warm. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> get to chopping. So yeah. do you, are you, are you, what do you have? Are you gas electric or are you, you know, a we, have gas. we have uh -huh. gas. Um, we do have a gas fireplace that we have never used. And so we're kind of nervous because we, we don't know how to do it. <laughs> so we're really nervous that if our power goes out, we're going to have to figure out how to turn on this gas fireplace in the dark and <laughs> maybe do it wrong. <laughs> so we're oh trying to like, we've, we've sent out requests to people that we know who know about these things. Like, how do you do this? Send them pictures and things like that. We're trying to, we're trying to learn it just in case, yeah. but we're really hoping we don't have to I use it. I don't know if you've heard about this place. The young people are really into it. It's called YouTube. And I think they might <laughs> yeah. have a tutorial in there. That's where I go for all of my uh, home care needs. 
you know, it's how yes. I figured out how to fix my idea. Um, ice dispenser <laughs> in my refrigerator. It's how I figured out what's wrong with my dryer, yeah. you know, YouTube. <laughs> it's really kind of a wonderful thing. That sounds great. I should try that. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden you and I became 70 year old uh, people saying like, I can't get my fireplace. It's okay. The, the kids are using this thing called the YouTube. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, so let's, let's get into this now, now that we know, now that we've learned something about ice storms, now that we know that, you know, most of the country right now is clearly still feeling and dealing with the effects of the other main issues of our generation, mostly climate change, right? Like these things, when they happen, like an ice storm, like a major winter storm, it just reminds us again, oh, right. It isn't just the pandemic. It's also, you know, the planet that is hurting and under a pandemic of sorts and not doing well. And we haven't figured out the vaccine for the planet just yet. Mm -hmm. And when we had over the summer, you know, uh, more instances recorded and then shared um, these stories that continue to, you know, create the narrative of state sanctioned violence going un, you know, contested, going un, uh, you know, reconciled. Um, we have these moments in the summer that remind us, right, we don't just have a pandemic, we also have state-sanctioned violence, um, and the police get to get away with murdering Black and brown people. And then we have the vaccine getting rolled out now, you know, after a year, towards the end of the first year of the pandemic, and we have major inequity and inequality in terms of how people are accessing accessing the vaccine. And so we are again reminded about our class, um, racial, and, you know, just all the things, including transportation and everything, access um, to healthcare and medical care in general. And so we are seeing the underbelly of everything this year, all at the same time, all while we're just trying to learn and conquer a new monster um, that is still called COVID-19 and it's the year 2021 now. And so we haven't spoken in a few months and most of these things um, that are newer, like an insurrection, a change in administration and such have happened since we last spoke. And I'm curious to um, see if you remember yourself in the last few months, what are some big moments um, that happened either to you personally, your family or the country that really stood out to you as things that um, maybe you didn't see coming or you did, or you're thankful for just anything that has stood out over the last few months. What are those things as we're, as we're finishing up the first year? Well, the biggest thing is that my mom and dad and my brother have all been vaccinated and what? that to me is like huge. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. My, bro my brother is a teacher. And so <clears throat> they prioritize teachers in Kentucky and he has had his first dose of the vaccine. And then my parents are both over 65. And so they were able to access it because of their age. And they have both now had both doses of the vaccine. And it just feels like the hugest relief I've ever felt. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. I've been so concerned and worried about all three of them, mostly because yeah. mom and my brother are still, ha had still been interacting with children because they've both been delivering meals um, uh, mm -hmm. twice a day, every day. Um, <clears throat> so I've been really concerned, but <laughs> that's the, that is the biggest thing that I think has happened over the past few months. 
that is just a sigh of relief. I can't even. Now remind me, did they both have a moment? I think we, we, we talked about this in one of the previous interviews that either they both had a, a COVID-19, you know, um, interaction and scare or that they both had it. They both tested positive for COVID. Remind me. My mom did. My mom. Yeah. She had had it. Um, she tested positive back in the summer. Um, yeah. And we were all really concerned because she has an autoimmune disorder and yeah. we were worried about, you know, what is this going to mean? Fortunately, she was largely asymptomatic. However, in the months since she has had these flare ups, she has Sjogren's disease, which is a thyroid disorder. And she's had a lot of flare ups that have just been happening all at once. And this is mm-hmm. never something that's happened. I mean, she's had several symptoms at the same time, but never to this degree. And, yeah. you know, two of us were talking about it, talking about some of the things she was experiencing and just theorizing, I wonder if this is a lingering impact from COVID because, right. you know, she didn't really have, um, she didn't have the cough. She didn't have a fever or anything like that when she was still testing positive. But like I said, now it's these just weird symptoms from the Sjogren's disease that she's not huh. never really had before. And since the vaccine, and that happened before the vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. And since the vaccine, has she noticed any um, other, you know, potential new developments of something lingering or something maybe from the vaccine? No, she hasn't. And she actually, she just told my brother and me the other day that um, she didn't have a bad reaction to the second dose of the vaccine. And that's that's a dose that I've been hearing from many people yeah. has been really kicking their butts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and I was really surprised. I mean, I thought if anybody you know, was going to have a reaction, it would be her. Right. Well, you know, the, the thing that I have learned, you know, also being immunocompromised and and having, you know, ongoing uh, chemo treatments throughout the year, um, you know, before I got the vaccine, I did research on particularly my medication and what was known and just in general immunocompromised folks. And the biggest thing that kept coming up was we don't know. And the reason yeah. we don't know is because in the trials, people who were immunocompromised or with dealing with cancer or having, you know, chemotherapy as part of their, their healthcare regimen were not in the trials. I mean, rightfully so, right? Like if we're trying to figure out what's going to happen with this vaccine, we don't want to have necessarily the most vulnerable, most vulnerable, most vulnerable be tested for it. And yet maybe we did need that because so many of us actually are immunocompromised more than I think any of us know. I mean, in terms of living with a long-term chronic illness, statistically in the United States, it's one in seven. So that's one in seven people who we don't really know what's going to happen with the vaccine. And what I was reading was that it wasn't clear how much the vaccine was going to be able to be really, um, if you can call it this, like consumed and really taken in by the body that is on medication that is to deal with um, immunocompromised conditions. And so, you know, at one point I was worried, is the vaccine going to counteract my chemo medicine? And then my tumors will come back. Mm -hmm. And my oncologist was like, no, we're worried about Mm -hmm. the opposite, that your chemo medicine will lessen the vitality or the strength of the vaccine. And so, you know, he's like, but we're advising, my oncologist said that he's advising in the office, everyone, no matter what stage of cancer they may be in to get the vaccine. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line is we want something in your system so that you don't die. 
We're just trying not to die. Yeah. We're trying to not spread this, to not have it mutate and to not die. You know, like we can't necessarily at this point prevent it from existing, you know, or kill it. This is a vaccine. It's not a cure, right? There's a clear difference between a cure and a vaccine. This is about trying to prevent the spread, prevent its potency and prevent its potency in our bodies. And so I was really nervous that if I didn't have a reaction, it was meaning that my body was rejecting it and not taking it in. Mm-hmm. So my second dose was horrible. It was just last week and I, I was out the whole week. Yeah. And while I was really um, not okay <laughs> every day with what was mm-hmm. happening, I was also taking it with a grain of salt. Like, but I think this means my body is, is really taking it. Right. So to your mom, you know, we just don't know. We don't yeah. know if her body is not ingesting it or is because it seems like your mom has a really amazing body Yeah, because <laughs> even when she did have COVID, she didn't show any symptoms, right? It wasn't until later and it really took it, took it in maybe in a different way. So that's the other thing that I learned. And I think we've all been learning in this year (laughs) is that we are so uniquely different from one another. And um, that's not a good thing when it comes to this, by the way. (laughs) So it it means that it means that the one vaccine isn't going to work for everybody. Mm -hmm. If all the problems are different, then all the solutions need to be different. It can't just be one solution for everyone. And that's what we're, we're up against right now. But I am so excited because, you know, we could hear it in your voice and and we would look at each other in concern of like WTF, like what is going on? How many folks do we know and love are we going to potentially lose? And, and you want to tell your loved ones, please stop helping other people and putting yourself at risk. (laughs) But then you, you hear that and you're like, I'm an asshole. Please stop (laughs) helping people. Right. So, so there's this whole thing going on. And then, you know, we've also talked in the last year about you living in the state with turtle McTurtle face, you know, yeah. uh, Mitch McConnell. And, um, and he is no longer uh, the majority uh, speaker uh, of the Senate, right? He's no longer the leader there, but he does seem to still be pulling some strings. You know, oh, yeah. we weren't able to impeach, uh, have the impeachment hearing in the Senate bef- while President Trump was still president because McConnell wouldn't let that come to the floor. And then afterwards uh, was on the fight of, well, I don't know why we're even having this impeachment hearing. It's not like he's the president anymore. When he made that whole thing so... <laughs> And then the impeachment (laughs) trial ends with no, you know, with an acquittal. And Mitch McConnell then immediately gets up and says, well, there's no doubt in any of our minds that he was guilty. (laughs) So I'm just curious, how does it feel, Ivy, to have to to live in the state where this is your representative? Clearly, he knows how to play this game better than anybody. But it shouldn't be a game. It's our lives. Yep. So. What are your what are your thoughts recently about the political things happening in the country? Oh, many, many thoughts. <laughs> so many it's like, things. It's like an ice storm, people. <laughs> it is. It's like an ice storm that just like lasts for four to six years. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't yes. melt for a really long time. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I just like, you know, I I really, really, really wanted Senators Warnock and Ossoff to win, not because I wanted McConnell to no longer be the majority leader. I mean, that was a that was a great part of it, 
but I knew that it wouldn't really matter in terms of the power that he wields uh, in yeah. the nation, but also in our state. I knew that that was just, that's a constant and until he dies, frankly, <laughs> that's a constant. Um, but I wanted them to win because it gives the Democrats power now to do a lot of good and to help a lot of people. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see, even if we have Republicans screaming and yelling about it, about how they don't want to like do it and just being, being Republicans about it. We still have the votes and we can still do it. Um, so I wanted that in terms of McConnell, I just think his power is, never going to go away, like I said, until he is no longer a senator. And it is my full belief that he will be a senator as long as he's alive. Um, you know, in Kentucky, we just, um, it, our politics here are really complicated, as I'm sure they are anywhere else. Um, right. But I think in Kentucky, we sort of resign ourselves to certain things, especially that McConnell is always going to be one of our senators. We don't necessarily feel that same way about Rand Paul because he's less established, but McConnell's been a senator as long as I've been alive. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, has yeah. he always been your senator? Right. He has always been my senator. And so it just feels like this immovable force that there's not a whole lot we can do about it. You know, I mean, this last election, we ran one of the best candidates we could have possibly run against him. And he still won by 20 percentage points. So it's just like, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, it's just hard. It's just really hard um, to live with that reality and to feel as if there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. And to feel like every time that, you know, we're running an election against him, we, we are going to lose, but we have to keep trying is just, it's a really hard reality. And I know for the people who work in politics in the state who are working on the democratic side of politics, it is really, really hard to be a part of that right now because we have a Republican supermajority in our state that is already just absolutely going crazy. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are, are they going even pass. further to the right. Oh, absolutely. 100%. They have filed a bill to limit the governor's powers so that he can't, uh, he can't declare a state of emergency for any reason. And that's because they're mad at him about the COVID restrictions that he's put in place. Things like wearing masks in public places. You know, I mean, these like very basic CDC guidelines that he's declared emergency orders about, the legislature said, no, we don't want him to have that power. And so they immediate, that was one of the first bills that they filed. And they have just continued to just put out these really terrible, terrible pieces of legislation that will pass, that will go to the governor's desk because it is a super majority. And so we're, we're in this spot where we're going to be here with this Republican supermajority for a long time, for probably decades. And we just have to sort of find a way to get through and find a way to, you know, do things at the local level, um, work together as communities, you know, with organizing and nonprofits to just help each other because our legislature is not going to do it. They're just not. <sighs> there was a part of me that noticed that one of the first things that crossed my mind as you were talking was 
why are you there, Ivy? Run away, <laughs> hurry, run now. And we have, we've even talked, you know, and yeah. I, I don't remember if it was in the podcast or just like conversations on our own as as in under the Trump years, under the last yeah. administration. You know, mm-hmm. I know that we've talked over the years about making sure we have passports, like mm-hmm. trying out different places, making sure that there's a way out if we felt like things were, were going in that direction. And I have to be honest with you. I really feel like if we had had another four years of the previous administration, administration that like, I don't know that I could have just hunkered down and weathered that storm for another four years, especially if the insurrection had been, you know, positive. Let's say the insurrection had been successful and they had taken the Capitol. There's no way, there's no way I would have stayed. Like, I think I would have had to have have left. And I think there were many of us, the most marginalized, knowing that if if the most dangerous and the most radical right, the most homophobic, the most racist, the most, you know, everything were in power, that we were the targets. You and I are the targets in our respective towns, in our respective states and in the country. You and I are 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 queer people who are you know uh, the democrats the radicals to the left like we (laughs) were we were the targets Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's a new day knowing that that target is still there and that those folks have gone nowhere just home Mm -hmm. and so it's it's like a reminds me i don't even want to say this but it reminds me of those sleeper cells right the like (laughs) silent organizing underground waiting for the moment so that was the first thing that crossed my mind. Why don't you leave? And then the second thing that crossed my mind was remembering what it was like to live in California under um, a governor, Pete Wilson, who was incredibly conservative, where all of our representatives were Republicans, where all of our city councils and school boards and everything was really super majority Republican. And we stayed. Yeah. And and we just organized locally and just waited it out and tried to figure out how to build more political power and how to help each other when the state and representatives weren't. And now it's a very different state. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily, you know, like solved all the problems, but it has definitely lifted the ice storm, if you will. The ice yeah. has <laughs> melted um, in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And then I looked up McConnell's age. Mitch McConnell (laughs) took office in 1985. Prior to being a senator, Mitch McConnell was a judge in Jefferson County. And prior to that, he was a U.S. um, assistant attorney general. Um, And now he's, you know, uh, been a senator and he's 78 years old. He's older than both of my parents. He's older than the oldest person on this podcast who's 77. Mm -hmm. And so just saying, there's something that happens and has happened in our shared lifetime that when a generation leaves us, those future generations really, really move the needle and move things. And it's almost as if we as a population have to get out of our own way in order for change to really happen. Um, So that's the only thing that is potentially on our side in terms of unseating Mitch McConnell is that he would have to unseat himself. Um, And that doesn't necessarily look like it will be too much longer. But we do have, you know, the president um, who presided over the impeachment hearing. Ooh, there were yes. moments where I was like, oh, God, is he still here? Are we still <laughs> are we still able to do this? Like there is something. So I, I'm actually curious what you think about this. You know, we have we have minimum requirements 
for how old you at least have to be to run for president, uh, to run for you know offices and all these different kinds of things. Should there be maximums? Should there be an age limit for how old you can be to run for president? In which case, I don't know that we would have Biden right. or Trump for that matter. Mm-hmm. And it might be something that would you know remove someone from office like a Mitch McConnell. Yeah. What do you think about maximums? I don't know. I haven't thought much about maximum age limit. Um, what I have thought about is term limits, period. <laughs> you know, you get you get like two terms as a senator and then you got to get out because, you know, this is not it's not sustainable, in my opinion, to have somebody be in office for 36 years or longer to just be there taking up space not really helping anyone, <laughs> you know, it'd be right. different if they were, if they were doing good things that whole time and working for the good of the people. But in McConnell's case, that's absolutely not true. You know, he's done more harm to the entire country in this 36 years in office than just about anybody else who's ever held political office, at least in our lives. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think term limits would be a really, really great idea. And I know people say like, well, elections are technically term limits, but that's not true. <laughs> it's just right. not true. You know, these people like McConnell have figured out how to game this system in their favor so that they are secure. They are secure in an election. They don't have to worry about that. So I I don't know. I don't know about age limits. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a person who feels like when the time comes, you step down, you get out of the way, you let the next generation take over because, you know, at some point, my experience and my knowledge is not going to be what's needed for, for whatever position I'm holding, you know, it's on a board or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and that's been my policy since I, since I started working in the nonprofit world is, you know, if I'm on a board and I've been there for a while and it feels like somebody else needs this spot, I step down and I step aside so that somebody else can step up. Um, and I, I think like, it'd be great if our, <laughs> if our elected representatives and senators felt the same way. Um, but yeah. they don't. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm not sure that, um, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a maximum age would be a good idea. You know, maybe at 80, <laughs> we can cut it off for 75. <laughs> I mean, I mean, 80s, 80s pretty up there, you know, it's pretty uh, up there. <laughs> I, I hope I have everything going on that needs to be going on at 80, but I know that yeah. it, it, I, I look at my friends and family who are in their seventies and I'm like, you look tired. You know, yeah. like you, mm-hmm. you need a nap. I get it. Things yep. are, things are slowing down. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so I, but I'm with you on the term limits. I, I guess to, to, I heard you sort of like drop what a different alternative viewpoint of that would be like, but what if they're good? And then we're right. saying like the good can only be there for so long. So what we're really talking about is term limits for the duds, you know, like it has yeah. to be kind of like the gong show. Can we gong you out? But I, but you know, uh, like you had mentioned, some people see the fact that there are ongoing elections as the term limits. It's right. complicated. It's, it's so complicated, complicated by design. You yes, know, like it, is, it isn't uh, it isn't an accident. This is this is complicated like this on purpose. Yep. So, OK. All right. So we've got the McConnell out. Your family is safer now mm-hmm. with the vaccine. When are you getting it? I don't know. <laughs> we have signed up through UK Healthcare, which is our flagship university. Um, we have also signed up through our local health department. Um, and these are both, I mean, it's coordinating with the state. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, the state program essentially with different outlets. Is this um, online? 
Yes, yes, we have signed up online. Um, on one, uh, through the health department, we were told we would be in round 1C, which is the next round of vaccinations. Um, and the other one, we were just told, we'll call you when <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> so, so we don't know, you know, we, neither of us have, you know, health conditions that, you know, would put us, would move us up in the line. We are mm -hmm. in our thirties and relatively healthy. And so, you know, we're not, um, I, I personally am not very stressed about when I get it. I know I'm on the list and I know that, you know, when they have, my when my time comes they will call me and i'll be able to get the vaccine and i feel like we are at home we're working from home um we aren't really going anywhere we aren't seeing anyone and so i feel relatively safe because of that um yeah. i will feel a lot better <laughs> once i do have the vaccine um yeah. i think probably um you know, my guess is late spring or early summer is probably when we'll have access and be able to make an appointment for the first dose. Now, now do you have a um, post-vaccine plan? Like, are there things <laughs> that you have listed, at, you know, as soon as, as I'm done with my second dose or a month after my one dose or two weeks after my second dose, depending on which one you get at that time, um, do you know what you're going to do? afterwards i know one thing one thing is we are going to rent a cabin for my family my brother his family my mom and dad and we're gonna go and spend like four days together <laughs> just like hold up in this place together because we have gotten such precious little time yeah <laughs> over the last year you know and it feels yeah it feels so i feel so out of sorts about it i mean we're a pretty close family and we spend a lot of time together normally and we just haven't been able to do it. And so, you know, yeah. last week we actually booked this cabin and we're like, surely by this time, by this month, yeah, we will have the vaccine. <laughs> we will but all I love, have had it. <laughs> but I, but I love how the amount of time, this is so COVID. This is so COVID. This is like the most COVID thing I've heard. Okay. So here it comes. I'm going to get my immediate family who I miss tremendously <laughs> and put us all in the cabin and we're going to finally be together for four days, right. <laughs> four days. Okay. It wasn't even five people. It wasn't even a whole seven day week. It was only four days. And why is that such a COVID thing? Because if you haven't seen folks for like a year, you've gotten really used to like not being around people. And uh -huh. so all of a sudden you're going to jump into this pool of like all these people. No, four <laughs> days, four days is going to be four great. Days. There's a saying, you know, and I didn't, I didn't believe it for a while. And then I believe it. And then I forget it. Somehow I pretend it's not true. You know, mm. the people and fish go bad in th after three days, but it's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. So I so commend you. I commend you on four, four days. Yes. Cause that feels like a sweet spot for all the things pre and post COVID. Um, and because of COVID in terms of like what we can actually handle. Right. Okay. That sounds great. <laughs> this is, this is really good. This, I love yeah. this. This is, it's, it almost feels like we have to do Christmas over. It's I like know. A Christmas yeah. Over thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So how's work and what are you doing? at work right now? How has work shifted over the last year? Work for me has completely shifted. Um, when the pandemic hit in March, we were all just, as I think a lot of people were, we were all just 
taken so aback by everything that was happening. I mean, there were there were several weeks there. Well, at least a couple weeks there where, um, you know, the president was like, just take a couple of days off. Like we're going to just have a, a snow day. We started calling them COVID days. Yeah. <laughs> nice. We're just, everybody's off for today. Just, you know, take care of yourself. That kind of thing that happened several times right in the beginning because people were just feeling so completely overwhelmed. It took us a long time to really get our feet underneath us and figure out, okay, how do we work from home, everybody virtual, you know, how do we transition into this new way of communicating Mm -hmm. with each other? It just, it took us a long time. There was a big transition period. And, you know, there are people on staff who are, you know, various ages and various degrees of technological capabilities and things like that. So it just was a big adjustment. Um, But one thing that we have been able to do that I think is really, really important is to take a step back and to look at the work that we had been doing to this point and to say, is this still what we need to do? You know, we yeah. we work in this region where there is systemic poverty, there is systemic drug addiction, there is all of these systemic issues that exist in this place that really harm people and hurt people. And in this pandemic, it just totally, totally ripped open any kind of veil or cover that we had <laughs> over any of this. To, to ignore it, you know, or to say like, we, we need to, we don't need to deal with that right now. We got to do something right. else. I mean, we're seeing, you know, lines for boxes of food that were stretched out for two or three miles, you know, for a box of food that was going to last like a week for a family, you know, in, in Eastern Kentucky and many communities, there was housing insecurity, um, food insecurity, health issues. And these are not new things. This didn't just right, happen in right. March, 2020, but right. what happened was it amplified every single mm-hmm. one of those issues. And so we had to take, take a step back as an organization that does new economy, community development work in this place and say to ourselves, what are we really doing here? Is what we're doing really having the impacts that we want it to have? And so we really have taken this whole year as a staff to really think about that and to plan and to think about what are, what are the ways that we can better use the programs that we already have in order to help more people and to advance advance this new economy in this place and, and do it so that we're doing it in an equitable and a just way. Um, and that, that I think has been really good for the organization. And I think it's going to really set us up to, to shift things in really measurable ways that really have a bigger impact. Um, I think it's going to be really great. Um, and then personally, like in my personal work, part of my work is communications. And then the other part is policy work. And this has been a part of it that we just haven't had time for, but over this past year, we've had more time for that. And so I've been able to think about what do we want this program of policy to look like at this organization and how do we want to do this work? What do we, how do we want to, you know, advance (laughs) these policies in a super, super majority of Republicans at the state legislature, Mm -hmm. that's going to be really, really hard. Um, So it's been really, it's been really fun to think about how do we do this policy work? um, And then what do we need to make it happen? Because we just haven't had time to do that. This, this, this pandemic moment, at least for the organization that I work for has given us time to really think and process and make some plans and it's been good so far. <laughs> yeah, you know, we were talking about these these other issues and and crises that were that were happening 
before the pandemic and how they're yep. still here and the, the reminder that they are still here and are, and are basically, it's almost like they're the jealous, the jealous sibling who's like, yeah. um, hi, don't <laughs> you remember I'm climate change and <laughs> right. I don't know why everything's COVID, 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 you know, like if we're going in alphabetical order, CL <laughs> comes before CO, does yeah. it not? And so, <laughs> You know, I'm I'm curious, like, what has happened to things like the opioid um, crisis, you know, in Kentucky and and drug addiction and and these kinds of things? Like, is it still happening? Is it happening at just like a different scale? Did everybody have to go through like the most painful, you know, um, cold turkey get off of everything <laughs> process because you couldn't very easily go and get medical attention or get a prescription or even interact with people or, you know, as a former, you know, addict myself in recovery, like, nah, we, we, we do whatever it takes to get what we need, you know, so nothing's going to stop us, right. not even a pandemic. <laughs> um, so I'm just wondering, like, what, what have you seen, you know, you mentioned about, you know, the effects of these kinds of things, right? Like housing insecurity, these food lines that, you know, stretch much longer than they had before. But I didn't really hear specifically about, you know, drug addiction and, and the opioid um, crisis where people are just overdosing and dying. Like, what does that look like in terms of its amplification under COVID? It's gotten worse. It's gotten much worse. Uh, people have not had access to treatment facilities. Um, right. They haven't been able to go to programs. They haven't mm -hmm. been able to be in community the way that they were before. And so right. it's gotten worse. Um, I, don't, I don't know specific numbers, uh, but I do, I do know that it has gotten much worse. And it's, it's, it's one more thing, one more terrible thing that when this pandemic um, hopefully comes to a close uh, relatively soon, that's one more thing that we're going to have to address and try to figure out and try to help with. Um, you know, like I said, these problems exi have existed in this place for a really long time. Yeah. And we were already, you know, in this mode of thinking that this is going to take us decades to pull out of this and to get to level, you know, where we can right. start to build something new. Um, but this pandemic really set the region back a long time, decades, decades yeah. for sure. Businesses I mean, have closed. People yeah. are have lost their homes. Drug addiction has gotten far worse. Um, it's just, it's really set us back for sure, as it has many other places. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, twelve step programs during this time of the of the pandemic. You know, many of them, I would say, even most went online. Yeah, and so it still required Zoom. It still required a yep. computer. It still yep. required Wi-Fi or internet access. And so mm -hmm. we we put more hurdles in front of folks who, you know, again, speaking from the community that I'm a part of, one more hurdle, one exactly. more thing for me to try yep. and do something that you want me to do. You know, like it's 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 just another reason to um, say it's too much. And, yeah. you know, part of the recovery process is finding that community and feeling a part of and feeling like there is a place for you to go. And when those physical places and that physical community isn't there, it's really hard. I'm, I've been so yeah. thankful that I have as much sobriety time as I have. I, you know, my, my, my friends and I, who I, you know, are in program with and, and do fellowship with, you know, we often look to each other and I, I, you know, I've asked him, you know, even recently, like, gosh, can you imagine what this would have been like if we were in our early years of recovery, this would have felt like the reason to give up. 
yeah. you know, because um, the scary thing that happens when you're uh, an alcoholic uh, and a drug addict is that you're not looking, you know, at some point once you get sober to just go out and, right. and use again, you're looking to just get out of here period. You know, there's intense suicidality. There's intense anxiety, um, anxiety and depression, uh, when it comes to 12 step programs and people seeking and needing recovery like that. And it's just, we're not giving a lot of hope right now. Um, and so Mm -hmm. I can, I can see how all of those things would be exasperated and, and to a degree that's, that's, you know, also unfortunately not something we can really see because we're not traveling. We're not seeing things for ourselves and and we're not able to to share those kinds of things either. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's pivot to some hope here. Let's let's pivot to something (laughs) a little bit different. So, you know, we started out this podcast um, asking people, you know, at the beginning of sheltering in place, at the beginning of, we don't know what's happening to think about a time that this reminded you of, right? Under the premise of if the feelings are the same, if we can use the same sort of, you know, tools, exercises, activities, and resources in previous moments to deal with those sort of feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and just like fear, can we use those here? Well, now it's been a year. We have, <laughs> we have just seeded new ways of getting through a really hard time, whether that is scaffolded and built upon previous ones, or we had to create new ones. Yeah. This is now an opportunity where you get to leave behind the lessons and the, the things you want to remind yourself moving into the future about how you got through this particular hard time. Or you're leaving it for future friends and family and community members in Kentucky. This is how we in Kentucky got through this time. So maybe we can use that moving forward for the next hard time that is just inevitably before us. Um, And so I'm curious, what are the lessons that you think you yourself uh, don't want to forget about how you mm-hmm. got through this last year. And also as a, as a community, as a state, as a country, are there other lessons that we can take from a broader, you know, more of a, uh, a macro view of how we got through this time. And clearly we're not done right. and we're still in it and nothing yeah. has been solved or resolved, but the fact that your family who you were most concerned about the most vulnerable are in a little bit of a safer space now, does mean that there is some something that we have at least been able to move towards that feels like progress. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think, I think that's one of them that it can seem really dark in the beginning of, of some kind of crisis like this, where it feels never ending and it feels as if we're going to be stuck here. How are we going to get through here? You know, what, what, what is the light at the end of the tunnel? It seems so far away. And I think that is like a good reminder to remember. I, oftentimes um, when things felt really, really hard in the beginning of the pandemic would remind myself that when there was the 1918 flu pandemic, it took them like three years really to, to be out of that and to get back to normal, quote unquote normal. And so that reminder of history and thinking about, you know, we're going to get there. It may take a long time, but it will happen was really helpful to me. And I think that's what we can take away from this moment. One of the things that, you know, we just have to 
hang in there and try to do the best that we can and be really gracious with ourselves and really kind to ourselves and to each other because it's really hard for everybody, no matter who they are. I was just talking last night um, to my wife about how um, there's, it's, I just feel this collective grief about everything and everyone that has been lost over the past year that is just so hard to wrap my brain around. I just can't, I can't even comprehend what it means sometimes. Um, and I think that's, that's also something to think about is that like, there has been all of this loss. Um, we haven't been able to uh, find a way to collectively grieve about it. Um, and that's also been a layer of this that I think we, we might not have known from previous situations like the flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I also think that um, there, there have been ways where these people who we've lost have been acknowledged very publicly and, and openly and um, in news broadcasts, um, on, in podcasts, like all of these in newspapers. Um, so I don't know where I'm getting, I'm sort of rambling, but I think, um, you know, the one thing is like, it, there will be an end to this, like change really is the only constant. Every, you know, everything is constantly changing all the time. And one thing you can be sure of is that even when you're in a particular moment, such as a pandemic or some other kind of crisis, there is, there is another side to that, that you're going to get to eventually. Um, and, and I think there's this thing about just trying to stay connected, um, trying to be as connected as you possibly can to people. I mean, one of the things that I think I've personally learned is that I have this really huge network of people that sometimes I I feel like, oh, I shouldn't bother them, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't like, mm -hmm. I shouldn't like, you know, reach out because, you know, we're all busy and we're all living our lives and nobody has time for anything, you know, but what I found is that that's not actually true. Um, <laughs> that's been a lesson that I've learned that, you know, there are many people in my life, family, friends, coworkers who are seeking that similar kind of connection. And really all it takes is, is reaching out. And it's as simple as, as that. Um, that's, that's another lesson I think to keep in mind. And I think these are also lessons that are just true always, <laughs> you know, we don't have to be, <laughs> we don't have to be living through <laughs> a global pandemic in order to, you know, reach out to people or in order to feel like whatever it is that we're going through, um, is going to come to a better place at some point. I think those are lessons that, um, just translate to a lot of different situations and to life in general, um, and I think, um, you know, when I think about how hard um, the political situation has been over the past year, when I think about um, these issues of systemic racism and, um, you know, all the all of the strife that we saw over last summer, um, those those things are hard. Um, I, I think what we have learned, though, through this year is that they are ever present. And there is no ignoring these things. There's no just turning a blind eye and looking away from this. I think we are, because of this pandemic, because it put a magnifying glass on every single systemic problem that we face, I think it, I think we are in a much different place as a, as a culture and as a society than we would have been 
otherwise. Um, it's like, it's like I was saying earlier when I was talking about like, we've had time at work to like, think about where we are. I think we've had time as a nation to think about where we are, why we're here and where we want to go from here. Certainly some people, lots of people are not in the same place that a lot of other people are (laughs) people like you and me who are saying like, this is not okay. We have to do something different and do something better. I think that to me, you know, when I saw the insurrection um, on TV, the the prevailing thought that I had was there have, I mean, how many of those people are from Perry County, <laughs> my home County, you know, mm-hmm. how many of those people are from Eastern Kentucky? How many of those people are from Kentucky more broadly? And so for me, like the prevailing thought was, what do I do about that? What do I do about these people who I grew up with, who are my neighbors, who are people that in my work, I'm trying to uplift and help every single day. What do I do? What do I do to confront this reality that, you know, while some of us are saying, yes, we open the door, we want to know about racism in America. You know, there are all of these other people who, who are not, (laughs) they want to keep that door closed or, or they don't even see it as a door. You know, they see this, they have a completely different worldview. And so for me, it's like, what do I do? What do I do as a person from and of this place to make sure that the people who are my family members, who are my neighbors, who I went to church with growing up to make sure that they see the same things that I'm seeing and they don't see them in a way that is totally twisted and warped and just from QAnon conspiracy theories <laughs> that just are totally out of this world, you know, and I don't know if that's a lesson for anybody but me, but <laughs> I think, I think it can be, you know, I think it behooves us as people who sort of bridge a lot of different worlds and different communities to think about how we build those bridges even stronger. And if there isn't a bridge there, how do we do it? Because otherwise I just, I just don't think that we're going to get there. You know, we have to figure it out. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's, if what was the <laughs> answer to your question, by the way, how many of those folks in the insurrection were from Kentucky and how many of them were from, you know, Perry and, and how many of them do, do you in retrospect then look at and go, damn, like they were there. Or did you find that the folks who you were directly working with were not there? And that then that that means you have a, a whole nother group of people to potentially, you know, worry about or or start to figure out how to, um, right. you know, influence and, and, and change in some way, shape or form. Like, what was that answer? How many were from Kentucky? I don't know. We don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, my guess is a significant amount. Um, my guess is also that it wasn't people who have to work 12 hours a day in order to right. get paid for it or longer. <laughs> um, right. So I don't know. I, but I would say it was a significant amount. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I don't right. think I don't think any number that I saw would surprise me unless it was zero, <laughs> to be totally honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but, you know, what's interesting is that when I when I saw the insurrection happening, um, we had uh, a repairman in our house because um, we were redoing our, our bathroom because uh, when we got this house, the bathroom had this beautiful clawfoot tub in it, which anyone else would look at this bathroom and go, this bathroom is perfect. <laughs> but I'm disabled. And so I looked right. at this clawfoot tub and I said, 
oh no, I'm going to die in this tub. <laughs> now I know exactly how I'm going to die. It's not the brain tumor. It's this tub. <laughs> right. And so we had to change it out. Right. So a repairman is in to do the remodel of the bathroom and this is on TV and I'm doing some work and I'm watching it on TV and I start to see what's happening, the going through the barricades, breaking through the barricades, all these yeah. kinds of things. And my first thoughts were two things. One, people are going to die. Yeah. And two, I knew this was going to happen. Yep. You know, like I had seen the militia here in Northern Nevada over the summer um, at different protests for Black Lives Matter and to hold the police and state sanctioned violence accountable and, and to get justice there. And I saw the militia and nothing was happening. Nobody was holding the militia accountable. Nobody was pushing back. In fact, they were more in line and buddy, buddy and friends with police officers and the military here. It was hard to tell who was military versus who was militia. Um, we were being told uh, we're here because we're here to protect the property and we're here to protect you. Mm. I remember being at an action and I had my, my cane with me and I was so upset at seeing all these militia around who were blocking our access to be able to get to the car. So we had to pass them. I couldn't avoid them. Right. And, um, and I took my cane and I started banging on this barricade <laughs> and I was just banging on it. I, it so hard that I broke my cane mm. and I was yelling at them. Why are you here? Nobody invited you here. Go home. And, and there, there was a group of us chanting, go home, go home. And they would yell back, you go home to California. Mm. Turns out we later found out that much of these militia were all in these vans that had California license plates. So talk about <laughs> who needed to go back to California, right? Like there are definitely some very conservative hot pockets of, you know, militia and uh, yeah. right uh, wing, you know, sentiments in California, in the spaces where they aren't the like big urban centers and the same thing here in, in Nevada. Yeah, um, sure. And, you know, it was very dangerous. And I got very worried, you know, about like what, what was happening here? Um, because this is an open carry state. This is a right. state that, you know, says, yeah, go, go out and do this wild west and we do it our way and no other way. And so it was becoming very challenging. And when I first moved here in 2012, like it wasn't a very politically active place in, in that right. time. And it was developing over the years. Right. Um, and so we got to a place where I was like, this is going to cause harm. You know, this yep. is going to be bad. And, and I had to step away from it because it was triggering my PTSD that I I was just getting over from Trump being elected, you know, yep. like it was all these things happening. So when the insurrection happened, I was like, I knew it. And there yep. was a part of me that was like, finally, everybody else sees yeah. what I saw, you know, months ago or what many of us have seen for years. And there was, there was some gratitude there mm. that at least it got as out of control as it needed to get so that there could be no one in the country who even second guessed how dangerous letting these things just happen could be. And, and what I'm really struck by in terms of all the things that you said, you know, when you were talking about very individual, you know, like how you got through this, like, you know, remembering that you have these, these networks of people and relationships and staying connected. Um, there was also something in there about like that, when you were looking back at the Spanish flu and you were like, okay, three years, got it. Hmm. I can, I think we can handle this for three years. Right. And if this is the end <laughs> of year one, we've got two more years that knowing that sort of like very specific information 
was powerful for you. It gave you hope, gave you a roadmap, that information gave you the roadmap. And that's what was so challenging over this year is that we weren't getting any information or we were getting incorrect or incomplete information. Like we're getting, we're getting information now that when president Trump had gotten COVID that it was really bad and that they were about to put him on a ventilator. And that's not what we heard at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. We had also been told like, Oh yeah, the vaccines are coming. They're on their way, a change of administration. And we find out yeah, maybe the vaccines got approved, but there's no plan here yep. for anything, right? <laughs> and that information sharing is so important because if you don't know why and how and what happened and somebody tells you what it is, you believe it because you're yeah. looking for the information. So mm-hmm. QAnon exists because we haven't been explaining anything else. We haven't been sharing and exposing, this is all part of this system, or this is all the after effects of this process. Instead, Mm -hmm. we tell people it's gotta be, you know, aliens controlled by folks who were Jewish, who were then pointing lasers down on the ground. (laughs) And and of course that's gonna be the answer because what's the alternative? We're not Mm -hmm. giving anybody an alternative answer. Like we say climate change, but that's not an answer. Like, tell me how it is that climate change is warming up the planet so much so that we have these fires. Because if you can't make that simple for me to understand, then I will simply understand and believe that it's lasers from the sky. Like talk about communication lessons and policy lessons in order for folks to believe us and, and to listen to us and to get on board. We have to give them information that for every different audience, it applies to them and it makes sense to them. And Mm -hmm. it's reasonable for that to be the answer for them, because if it's not, we will continue to lose to the QAnons over and over again. Um, And I, and I, It's just, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, in some ways it's easy to understand how we got here. And like anything else, it's so easy to go down and it's so much harder than to come back up afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering before I let you go, if there is one thing that you think we are missing right now, that really is the sort of like kryptonite to all of the issues? Or is that is that part of the intersection of all these different issues? What is really at the center? People talk a lot in our circles and, and in areas where you and I have been that it's mm-hmm. just capitalism. You know, right. if we just got rid of <laughs> capitalism, you know, like if we just got rid of QAnon, you know, and, and I'm like, yes, and is it that simple? And what's the replacement that we can already see that we can really get people to agree to and, and to find hope in? And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what is that? What is the ultimate wall and barrier to all of these things? I don't know. <laughs> is it capitalism? Is it, is your, it's capitalism, isn't it? It is. Uh, you it? know, I, I mean, I think capitalism is a big part of it. I think that I think though, what is at the root of that is white supremacy. Frankly, I just think that there is this notion going back generations that white people are better than anybody else, and the people who have held power and who control the power have really sown this this toxic narrative to people, they've sold it to them as like the answer. They haven't called it that, you know, they haven't said, this is what we're doing here, but they have, they have 
quilted that narrative in such a way that people just, they just believe it, you know, they, and like I said, they may not call it that they may not recognize that that's what's going on, but it's definitely what's going on. You know, the people who went to that insurrection, they didn't do that for any other reason than they felt like it was their birthright to have Trump be the president, you know, and why did they feel like that? Because they feel like they are white, they have might, um, and they're going to use it to get what they want. Because if they don't get what they want, something, some cosmic shift has happened that has like totally upended society. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, unraveling us at the seams. I mean, these, these are the stories that I hear from Eastern Kentuckians, from people in my family, um, from people that, you know, work with my mom, you know, these are the things that they say, you know, we, we don't want these things taken away from us. So like this narrative that they've been sold that like, if they get something, you lose something is very, very powerful. And it's really hard to get people to see that that's not how this works at all. You know, it's just not how it works. We don't, first of all, we don't have anything for them to take. <laughs> and that's not what's happening here. You know, right. it's just about like, you know, we, we all need to, um, we all need to have the same levels of access and the same kinds of resources and all of this. And like, you know, it's not okay to keep that from some people. It's just not okay. And I just don't think that, you know, like, you know, you were just saying the insurrection, like, yeah, we saw this coming. Yeah, we totally did. Um, and that it, you were sort of grateful that um, people would see this is exactly what we told you would happen. Uh, I think that's true for people on the left. I don't think that's true for people on the right. You know, I think mostly what they saw was that their government failed them and the people who committed this insurrection are heroes and should be treated as such and should be thought about as such. And I now am very worried because Trump was not held accountable for this in a very, I'm very worried about what happens now because I don't think that, I think it's going to embolden these people even more. And it's not just the people who are the extreme, extreme right who are storming the Capitol. It's the people who are my neighbors and my family members in Eastern Kentucky who think that Democrats are out to destroy America. You know, I, and I just, I don't see that going away anytime soon. And I think it is going to take a Herculean narrative effort on the part of everyone who is against, who stands against white supremacy and who stands against an insur a literal insurrection of the Capitol. It's going to take us all coming together and putting this narrative out there, putting that information out there, like you said, so that people don't have to rely on QAnon so that they can see, oh, there are different stories here. And these stories, they like are more real to me because it's about somebody who is living one county over or whatever, you know, right. and that, and that's like, that's what I'm hoping in this new policy work that we do, that we're able to do, that we can use story and use narrative to talk about these issues that impact all of everybody who lives in Eastern Kentucky impacts their everyday life. They just don't think it does, you know? And so it's about educating people, giving them the information to say, this is exactly what's happening here. And so they can then make the decision about what they do with that information. I think it's just going to take, it's, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take us all 
pushing out these stories and pushing out this narrative that is real and isn't this simple explanation for everybody's right. you know worries and strafts. It's not that simple. Oh, Ivy, I thought we were trying to go someplace hopeful. Um, but but I think it's there, right? Like, I think we're learning about some blueprints. Yeah. At the beginning, yeah. the beginning as you were talking, I was like, okay, so we're saying that capitalism, capitalism is the means to the end of white supremacy. Yes. And yeah. yet, and yet there there is there are moments where like poor white people are displaced and felt and and basically you know told by other white folks you're not the kind of white folks that we're talking about right so there's yeah. there's a push out there there is there is that going on so that's kind of where that we're 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 class and and race kind of take this weird shift um right. and 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 have it have their own you know connected uh relationship in some way and then i was thinking about you know how do we counter a narrative of winners and losers and that they right. are you one they you can't have one without the other, right? You can't have a winner without a loser. You can't have a loser without a winner, right? And and how do you counter that? But it is such, it is such a hegemonic idea that there are winners and losers in every situation. Like every game that we play from the very beginning of, of you know, human interaction and relationship building, there are winners and losers. And we try yeah. and teach people that it's okay to lose. Like you have to learn how to be a good loser, Right. right. But 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 inherently <laughs> teaching people that you have to learn how to be a good loser means that inherently someone will lose. You will lose out on something. So how do we how do we create traditions and norms and ways of interacting that don't necessarily have that in them mm-hmm. and still make them fun? Because cooperation yeah. doesn't necessarily <laughs> always lead to woo. This is great because that's where <laughs> capitalism is learned. Capitalism is learned in these games of winning and losing. Capitalism is learned when there are grades and there's an A and there's an F versus here's what you need to get to this other level versus, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in constant competition with this other, you know, person in your class, right? So like literally capitalism is in everything that we do um, in terms of other things that we're trying to teach people. Oh no, I'm just trying to teach you how to like learn this material. No, you're not. You know, right. so there's other <laughs> underpinnings going on. And if you look at public education, public education was created to get people ready for work. Yep. Here's a bell. So you sit here, you get in this line. It wasn't made. It wasn't Montessori school. Public school was a different kind of school that yep. wasn't about learn what you want to learn. It was get ready to follow orders. And so then I'm thinking about what you were saying in terms of we need to have the kind of work where we're telling stories about people who live right next to you, because that's the counter narrative all the time. Well, what you're telling me, what, you want me to be like Nancy Pelosi over there in California? You want me to be like these other people over there? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be like anyone else. You're bringing in stories from someplace else. What about right here? But if all the stories are about right here in your neighborhood, in your state, and they sound just like all the other things that you were imagining don't happen here. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't speak for me. That's a real important and powerful lesson. And then I was thinking, oh, Ivy, you could call it left right here. (laughs) <laughs> like, because it has both of those things in it, left, yeah. right here, right? Like, but also it has that phrase of like, we were left right here. Like yeah. what was left right here? What was left right here for you to not be able to access? What was left right here in your backyard and nobody asked your permission? 
you know, and, and what are these things that are seen as potentially left ideas or potentially right ideas, but they're really just ideas that tell the story of us right here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that it, any cultural work, as we know, requires it to be in all these different places. It has to be in the games and in the classrooms and in the homes and in the neighborhoods, but it also takes so much time. Like we are battling yes. America that is <laughs> yes. centuries and generations old. Yeah. Much like 78-year-old Mitch McConnell. So anyways. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.